Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to patron emails. The first email I'm going to talk about is about narcissism. Then I'm going to talk about overt narcissism and covert narcissism. I'm going to talk about codependence and dependence and the interaction between dependency and narcissism. I'm going to talk about indecision. Uh, I'm going to talk about a lot of things. You can just look in the title of this episode to see what I'm going to talk about. This episode is actually going to be just for patrons of the podcast. I'm sorry for that. So if you aren't a patron of the podcast, you're not going to hear the whole episode. If you want to hear the whole episode, which will probably be one or two hours, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to this episode and hundreds of others of our best episodes. So go to patreon.com, become a patron, do it now. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, patrons. Super cool of you. So this is from an anonymous patron. She writes, Dear Kirk, I am a psychologist and would love to hear your perspective on the covert narcissist empath entanglement, meaning the entanglement between covert narcissistic people and empathic people. Stemming from not valuing nor legitimizing my own needs, hoping for a reciprocity. So she's talking about her interactions with uh, covert narcissist, and she's saying that it stems from her not valuing her own needs, ho- from her hoping for reciprocity by giving to these people, and by misconstruing narcissistic attacks and subtle put-downs from other people as being seen or as them providing valuable feedback. I've always been attractive to quote-unquote impressive or exceptional men who end up being a little, at least a little bit narcissistic or defensively grandiose, like you said in previous episodes. This has waned in the last couple of years with more self-awareness and psychoanalysis. However, I recently became friends with someone and could see that this dynamic has manifested again, albeit in much subtler ways. He is charming, ostensibly kind, and clever, but I always leave our encounters feeling a, a bit bad about myself. I feel criticized and judged. It's subtle, so I wouldn't brush it off as being my own insecurities. Uh, so, Oh, it's subtle, so I would brush it off as just being my own insecurities. However, I also observed that the conversation tended to always be about him. In time, I ended this friendship, acknowledging that I am replaying a tired pattern. I found some YouTube videos that describe this dance between the narcissist and the empath or the codependent person, and they resonated with my experiences. It would, however, be great to hear your perspective on it all. Interesting email, anonymous patron. So let's talk about narcissism here for a second. Let's review. So people who are narcissists, people who have narcissistic personality, so as I've talked about before, the term narcissism is thrown around a lot on the internet and in our uh, society. So it's uh, hard to know exactly what people are meaning when they refer to it that way. Narcissistic personality, in my conceptualization, is a spectrum with at the high end qualifying for the narcissistic personality disorder as it's described in the literature. But narcissistic personality is a is a spectrum trait that you could almost say everyone is somewhere on the spectrum, or you could say that a good percentage of people are on the spectrum. And this is the coping mechanism that we develop as children 
for uh, attachment disruption, essentially, either through abuse or neglect or chaos or alcoholism or, um, you know, separation from your parents or something. So usually it's mistreatment and neglect. And the child has a choice. They can either say, well, it's, it's my fault that I'm being uh, neglected. It's my fault that I'm not getting the love that I need, or it's their fault. And generally speaking, without going into the details, when people decide that it's their fault and not me, that's when narcissism starts to develop and other kinds of personality traits related to that end of the spectrum of avoidant uh, attachment style. In this style of coping, one learns to say, well, I'm going to preserve my own self-esteem and I'm going to look at other people as though they're inferior. That's why I'm not getting the love and attention I need. And I really just need to depend on myself. And I'm not going to depend on other people. In fact, I'm going to deny all of my own needs and my own vulnerabilities because it's overwhelming to think about them because when I think about them, it causes me to want to reach out to other people and I can't depend on other people. So I just have to deny that I have any feelings. I have to deny that I have any needs. I have to deny that I have any vulnerabilities or any kind of flaws. And this preserves my sanity by uh, propping up myself, by having a, a defensive grandiosity. Uh, I'm defensively self-focused, and I defensively need to keep the attention on me um, as well because I actually, even though I'm giving off the vibe like I don't have any needs, I deeply, deeply have needs for attention and love. But I have learned through early coping that the only way to really get that is to uh, become a, is to come across like I'm entitled and that I'm smart and I'm better because uh, people tend to like people that are better. Uh, you tend to get quick attention. But in the end, this actually pushes people away as they get to know me, and this causes uh, me to be continually abandoned and rejected, which you know furthers the reason why I need the defensive mechanism of narcissism. So uh, this defensive structure is a... A barrier or a protector against many bad things. It's not just, you know, people who are narcissistic are deeply suffering. They act like they're not, and they might not even be aware that they are, but they are deeply suffering. They are just, just beneath a very thin veil of the defensive grandiosity and self-involvement is a deep sense of abandonment and a deep sense of worry for rejection and also a lack of self, depending on the amount of mistreatment someone goes through and depending the degree of narcissism, higher degrees of narcissism means that the self is even less developed, meaning that they don't know who they are. They don't know what they want. They can't really interpret their impulses. They can't interpret their emotions. And they don't, so they, it's really hard for them to even, um, it have a self outside of the grandiosity. The grandiosity gives them this fake self that they can follow. They have opinions, they have ambitions, they have accomplishments, and this gives them a sense of who they are. But just beneath that veil is nothing. They actually don't know who they are. They are somebody, but they haven't had the space and the time and the secure attachment to explore who they are and what they are. And so that's narcissism. And people with narcissistic personality tend to have bouts of extreme uh, sadness and extreme um, discombobulation uh, where they will feel untethered and they will feel 
sometimes empty or just completely alone or um, in a lot of distress. So that's narcissistic personality. Now, you're talking about anonymous patron, about the, the covert versus overt spectrum. I actually don't use this spectrum very often. I find that, uh, especially the way it's described on the internet, I don't find it to be very interesting to me because covert narcissists, although it is worth exploring that this quote-unquote subtype of narcissism, I find that covert narcissists are actually fairly easy to detect as long as you understand the general principles of narcissism. And the way that people talk about on the internet is they essentially they equate covert narcissism with like being a sneaky asshole, like you're a jerk to, you know, typically it's about a man. And by the way, plenty of women suffer from narcissism, but it's typically about a man who uh, quote unquote uses women. This is a covert narcissist. And that's not the definition of, of narcissism or covert narcissist. So let's get into it. So overt narcissism is the classic form of narcissism that most people might be able to identify with um, or might know. So this is when people demand attention from other people. The quintessential example of this is Donald Trump. Now, I know some of you are Republican, but, you know, separate from whatever sort of policies that you may or may not agree with, if you're Republican, I'm guessing you do agree with his policy decisions, which is fine. That's it's a Republican position. Uh, but even if you're a Republican, you have to admit that Donald Trump has at least a, a slight narcissistic streak, if not a severe one. Some of the things that he said are, quote, all the women on The Apprentice flirted with me, consciously or unconsciously. That's, that's to be expected. So just think about that statement. He said this publicly. All the women on The Apprentice flirted with me. Wow. Uh, another statement. My fingers are long and beautiful, as it has been well documented, um, are various other parts of my body. <laughs> uh, another thing he said, my IQ is one of the highest. So let's just say for argument's sake that his IQ is quite high. It's not very common for people to say that their IQ is super high, uh, especially as he's trying to defend himself from criticism. Uh, he, he said something along the lines of, I know more about ISIS than the generals do, believe me. Another thing that he said, uh, said generally speaking, there's no one that's done so much for equality as much as I have. So you get a sense. Now, there's nothing wrong with a politician, and it's quite common for them to say, I am pro-equality, or I've done a lot for equal rights in our country. It's another thing to say, there's no one that's done as much as I have. It's one thing to say that you're smart. It's another thing to say your IQ is one of the highest. Um, it's one thing to say that women on The Apprentice flirted with you. Some of them did. It's another thing to say that all of them flirted with you. So this is these are grandiose statements that cannot be empirically true, or they're very unlikely to be true. That uh, all these, and and these are just some of the things that I could find. There are plenty of other statements that he makes, whether they're you know intimations or or straight up statements. So. Again, if you support him and you want to vote for him, that, you know, that's the Republican uh, uh, base and that's fine. But you have to admit that he has a, a, a kind of um, public version of narcissistic spectrum. So um, 
this this is the overt narcissist. This is a person who demands attention from others. They need it. They need others to to admire them again because they have this thin veil of defensiveness against a lot of suffer, suffering underneath that, and they they're in a constant need to distract themselves from that suffering by getting a lot of admiration from other people. They are overt about the opinion that they are better than other people. They're often extremely confident as if they can do anything. They don't admit or they don't even know that they have feelings of inferiority underneath that veil. They uh, can often seem attractive to other people. They often seem very self-sufficient. They're often preoccupied with fantasies of success. They come across as entitled. They come across as though they don't have empathy. People with narcissistic personality do have empathy. It's just impaired empathy because they're suffering to such a degree that they need to uphold this very complex defensive structure. And when you're focusing on those things, it's hard to notice other people's feelings, essentially. But people with narcissistic personality absolutely do have a capacity for empathy. It's psychopaths who, and antisocial people who don't have a capacity for empathy. Uh, people with overt narcissism can be charming, ambitious, uh, but again, deeply suffering and a lack of self. Overt narcissism, according to the research, is associated with higher well-being. It's associated with being optimistic. It's associated with not having depression or mood disorders. It's associated with high self-esteem. It's associated with a, a high satisfaction in life and with meaning in life. Now, we have when we look at research like this, you know, all these positive things related to personality, we have to wonder is it self-report is it or is it actually real? It's hard to know with people like this, right? All right, so let's talk about covert. So overt is sort of the classic narcissistic person. Let's look at overt or so covert. What I say, overt is the classic. Let's look at covert. Covert meaning hidden. So these people are also narcissistic. They also have the exact same need in that they were mistreated and they have a lack of self and they're deeply suffering. And they have a narcissistic, grandiose defensive structure that is on top of that. But the way that they deal with it is different because the way they sort of figured out a way to cope was different when they were younger. These people actually feel inferior and insecure. So they can come across as being kind of shy and lacking confidence, but underneath that shy lack of confidence is a deep sense that they are superior. It's, it's weird dichotomy where if you met them, you would almost immediately think, Oh, this person really doesn't have high self-esteem, or at least they don't come across as very narcissistic. They don't come across as very high in themselves. In fact, they might put themselves down a bit. They might be very uh, reticent to engage. They, you know, they don't brag outwardly. But underneath that, it's almost like you could consider it like they, they almost have like two layers of defenses. So the bottom is a lack of self and a lot of deep, deep, deep suffering and a sense that they are unworthy of love and attention. Above that is this uh, pretty thick shield of de of of defensive narcissism where they think they're superior, they think they're entitled, they're deeply arrogant, and they believe that they should be at the top. They, they have this deep sense that they're special and that they deserve to be at the top. And then above that is another layer of defense in which they're really quite sensitive to criticism because the criticism will challenge their grandiose self. Uh, they tend not to trust other people. They avoid situations that challenge their hopes of being superior. So whereas over, so an over, let's just take one example. 
So let's say you go to the uh, video game parlor and the overt narcissist looks at the pinball machine or the basketball game and says like, oh, I'm good at this and like plays it and is not that good, but figures out a way to say like, oh, the sun was in my eyes or um, manage it or even uh, practices a lot at the game to make sure that they're really good at the game. So that's an overt narcissist. They, they think they're good. They, they try things, they're outward and they, and they announce to the world that they're awesome. A covert narcissist is in this, you know, social group and they look at a video game and they think that they, uh, they think deep down that they would be good at it, but, and that they're better. They, they deeply feel that they're better than the people around them, but they actually won't play the game because they're afraid that things won't go right for them. And, uh, and so it's this, it, it, you can see how that would come across like they don't have high self-esteem, right? It comes across like, uh, oh, that person really downplays, you know, their abilities a lot. But that's their way of hiding their narcissism in a sense. I hope that makes sense. Um, so, uh, yeah. So these people tend to be envious of other people. They tend to compare themselves a lot. And, um, you know, there's a lot of those kinds of thoughts. The example that I could come up with, with again, covert narcissism is hard to detect in public because, you know, so if a, if a politician had covert narcissism, it would be hard, really hard to detect unless you knew them personally. Uh, overt narcissistic people tend to be very noticeable with their narcissism. But so I couldn't really think of any public figure that I, that had covert narcissism, but I could think of a really good example in, in the movies, which is the talented Mr. Ripley. This is a wonderful movie about narcissism, about covert narcissism. Matt Damon, he comes from lower class. He's very envious of the upper class. He's deeply insecure. He's aware of his lack of self. He's aware of his insecurities, but he feels deeply entitled to rise in the ranks of social class. And he's, not afraid to take matters into his own hands, you know, to get there. So he lies to get ahead. He, so people lie for a lot of reasons, but covert or hidden narcissists lie because they think they're entitled to whatever the lie gets them. They're, they're so desperate to gain the ambitious thing that they want to gain that they're willing to say, look, you know, if I got a lie to get there, that's just the way it's, that's just the way it's going to be because I deserve it, that kind of thing. So these people tend to have uh, um, more bad outcomes, like less well-being. They tend to be depressed. They tend to have anxiety. Again, they tend to report low self-esteem, low satisfaction with life, and an absence of meaning in their life. So, so that's what we're looking at when we're looking at overt and covert narcissism. So now let's look at your email here, anonymous patron. You're talking about yourself as a codependent person or an empath. I don't know what you mean by empath because empath could mean a lot of different things. Uh, I because there are many different roads to being empathetic. <laughs> you know, to to caring about other people's feelings. I mean, presumably all people besides psychopaths are empathetic to other people, right? So. I'm guessing what, because that's not a clinical term, empath. Uh, I believe if you're reading stuff on the internet, uh, which I don't necessarily recommend with doing without a grain of salt, what I'm guessing what they're framing it as is someone who is dependent, who 
um, is other focused, someone who is very focused on other people. Borderline people can also be like this too. Essentially, again, going back to our coping mechanisms when you're young, you have this choice, right, between it's either me or it's them. And if it's you, so the, the narcissistic person says, it's them, not me. I'm perfect. Other people are flawed. Well, the other choice is I'm the flawed one. Other people are perfect. And this working model preserves some of your sanity because you, you something's going wrong in, wrong in your life, but you can at least say, well, at least my caregivers are good. And if I can depend on them, then I, I'll stay safe and I'll be secure. And, and, and when any time I don't get love and attention from my parents, it must be because there's something wrong with me. There, there's a certain um, comfort to that, right? Something's going wrong. It must be me. It's not them. I'm safe because they're taking care of me. And so with dependent people, with borderline people, uh, there are two different kinds of personalities, but they share this um, uh, deprecating of the self and uh, idealization of other people, you become, as a, for, as a young person, very focused on other people's feelings. And so I guess that's what you mean by empath in that you're, you're very focused on other people. You don't really have – so in the same way that the narcissistic person doesn't have a self, even though they have a thin veil of an act of a self on the, on, on the surface, uh, the narcissistic – or the – sorry, the borderline person and the dependent person also lack a self. But the solution or the coping for that lack of self is it just looks different. So dependent people and narcissistic people might fit together. Narcissistic people and borderline people actually kind of fit together as well because the models fit, right? So to the borderline dependent person, they're like, I'm bad. Other people are good. And the narcissistic person is, I'm good. Other people are bad. And so when these two people get together, their working models fit. They're the, the way that they story their relationship fits, right? So the narcissistic person is walking around going, like, I'm great, everything's great, I do great things, I'm smart, I, I don't have any vulnerabilities, everything's great. The dependent or borderline person is on the other side of the table going, I have all these uh, problems, I need someone strong to latch on to, otherwise I can't really function in life. And meanwhile, both people lack of self and both people are engaging in defensive structures to defend against that. So that's why, you know, supposedly those two people kind of fit together, but let's get back to your description here. So, uh, cause there's some, uh, there's some details here. So you're saying that you don't value your own needs. You're saying that you hope for reciprocity by giving to other people, which, you know, makes sense. Uh, if you get with the right person, then that will work. Um, you also say that you misconstrue narcissistic attacks and subtle put-downs from other people as you being seen or as valuable feedback. Yeah, so when you grow up and you develop dependent personality or borderline, you're kind of used to people crapping on you. And it makes sense to you. It's it's connected, it's associated with love and attention for you because your your family probably did that to you. And so your gauge for that is a little off one because you're, you, you don't really notice it. And like for someone that doesn't grow up with put downs from their parents, when someone does put them down, they immediately recognize it as unethical and wrong. Whereas if you grow up with a lot of put downs, 
as an adult, when someone puts you down, you don't really notice it because it's like, well, that's what people do. You also might think, well, isn't that what loved ones do? You know, they, they put you down sometimes. Isn't, isn't that what they do? So, you know, I could see that happening to you. Um, you also say that you've always been attracted to impressive or exceptional men who end up being narcissistic. Again, it's possible, as you say, as, as the result of this dynamic between dependent people um, and narcissistic people. Let's see. You also, so then you say, okay, then I became friends with someone and he's charming, he's kind and clever, but whenever I leave our encounters, I always feel a bit bad about myself. I feel criticized and judged. So here's the thing. It's possible that you're healthy and the other person is not, and that you're just learning how to identify hurtful, narcissistic people, and you're learning how to not be friends with them. The other possibility is that you are actually doing something to socialize. Well, you're doing something, one, to find these people because they fit your working model of self and others, and it gives you the ability to use projective identification, which is a defense that we all need to do. Um, so you, you sniff out those kinds of people. But at the same time, you might also be socializing them to do this sort of thing. You know, dependent people tend to push other people into narcissism by uh, worshiping them, by not talking enough about yourself. So you might want to look at how you might be participating in that dynamic. Um, maybe you already are exploring that, but it wasn't uh, communicated in the email. Uh, these kinds of dynamics are two-way streets, um, especially if you find yourself continually being in a pattern like that. We tend to look at narcissistic people as the problem, but the dependent person is just as much the problem. Uh, and uh, especially when you see two people, it's actually one of the things that I really try to hammer into my supervisees is when you're treating couples, for example, or when you're treating an individual and they're complaining about somebody else, uh, it, there are certain kinds of personalities that are easily seen and easily identified and easily judged, like narcissistic person. But dependent people are actually really hard to detect. Now, I don't think we should be judging narcissistic people at all. For example, even with Donald Trump, I, I don't judge him. I suspect he was very much mistreated growing up and developed a narcissistic structure to defend against some pretty deep suffering. I, I suspect that if I could really talk with him over a number of sessions that he would uh, reveal that, that he deep down feels inferior and is in a constant uh, rat race to keep himself afloat by uh, propping up his ego and by making sure no one disagrees with him and by uh, having people give him um, accolades and this kind of thing. Um, so uh, I don't judge any personality uh, type, but it's easily it's easy, at least culturally, to be like, oh, the narcissist, he's a jerk. And the dependent person, oh, they're just trying to be nice. And um, neither one should be judged, but both should be identified as having an equal lack of self, an equal um, uh, degree of defensive structure to protect against their difficulties. All right, let's talk about something else. So you also asked Anonymous Patron to talk about the psychology of indecision. 
people who don't make decisions. And you say that as a psychologist, you actually work with young adults in college, and a lot of them are suffering from indecision. Well, it's hard to know exactly what you mean by that. Certainly, if you're depressed uh, clinically or even on the spectrum towards that, then it's really hard to make decisions. When uh, there are a lot of depressed people in every society, and there's something like, I don't know, uh, lots of millions upon millions of people are depressed, suffer from depression to some degree. And it's really hard to make choices because one, you lack motivation. Two, you're, you're, you're in such a slow state that you don't even really know what you want. So, um, so there's that. Uh, there's other kinds of things that one could suffer from that could make it hard. You know, it, for, for young adults in college to make a quote-unquote choice – a lot of things have to happen that people don't necessarily talk about. Um, you know, I, I'm just, I don't know if you're talking about this anonymous patron, but a lot of, say, 21-year-olds or 20-year-olds are in college and they don't know what to major in. They don't know what to do with their life. They, they haven't chosen a career. Well, there's a lot of reasons. There could be a lot of reasons for that. Um, one of which is that they're young. They, uh, when you're 20, it isn't guaranteed that you know what you want to do. We tend to look at the past and say, well, everyone seemed to know what they wanted to do in the past. Uh, no, they didn't. They just fell into things because there were so few options. If your dad was a carpenter in 1950, then it, you know there was no internet. There might not even been want ads in the paper or something. You just had to know somebody. And so you just became a carpenter like your dad, or you did something related to carpentry or something. Or in, if you were really rich, then you would go to college and you would network and you would figure that out. But not a lot of people did that. So it, it's not a new thing. But in the past, also in the past, you didn't really have time to think about it. You had to, uh, it was very much expected that you would be married with kids in your early 20s. So you had to have a career locked down by then, one that would last for 40 or 50 years and give you a pension. So there's a lot of pressure on people back then. Today, we have wisely released that pressure. And so, so now everyone's standing around going, well, what do I want to do? And it's a very hard an question to answer. And, uh, uh, and there's, but there's a ton of expectation on people to know the answer to that question. So I think that it's a little unreasonable to have that expectation. And so if I was talking to indecisive college students, I'd just be like, you know, just let it go. It's fine to lots of I maybe it's because at my university, Antioch University, we have a pretty good percentage of our student body are over 40 people that are over 50 or over 60. They did something for a while and they just decided to switch careers or it took them until they were 50 years, 50 years old to really figure out what they wanted to do with their life. It's not unusual. So that's one thing I would say. The other thing I, I would assess is, again, their sense of self. When you are mistreated, and there's a lot of roads to mistreatment. There's the obvious ones like being abused or neglected. But there's also just the general uh, emotional neglect that can happen within uh, loving families. You can grow up in a very loving family and not have the space to really explore who you are and get to know your emotions and get to know your preferences. And then 
you are launched into adulthood and boom, you're in college. And suddenly now you're supposed to figure out what you want to do without really knowing what you want to do at, at, at any turn in life. And so uh, as a therapist, I would try to assess that, you know, how, how do they, gen- do they know their emotions? Do they know their preferences in general? Again, at age 20, not a lot of 20 year olds are mature enough to know that kind of stuff. We tend to look at 20-year-olds as full-fledged adults. I have a, after going through my 20s myself and having a lot of clients, I consider adulthood to be a spectrum from the age of, say, 16 until the age of, say, 35. And if you meet a 28-year-old, you don't necessarily know at what phase they are in that spectrum. They could be more quintessentially like an 18-year-old or they could be more like a 35-year-old. So uh, it takes a while to really fully um, ferment, so to speak, as, a, as an adult. And 20-year-olds in college are expected to make these humongous choices about the rest of their life, and they just might not know themselves well enough. Plus, experience. Uh, you know, people will come to me and they'll say like, I want, you know, I talked about in a recent episode, they're like, I want to be a researcher. And I'll ask them, do you know any professional researchers? And they're like, well, I've read research articles and I've read books by other researchers. And I'm like, well, do you know what it takes to be a researcher? Because it's kind of like being a rock star. To be a, a professional researcher in psychology is an extremely hard gig to get. And even when you get it, it's actually not as fun as it might seem. So people are like, I want to be a researcher. And I, I just think, have you met a researcher? <laughs> and uh, again, we're expected to make these choices with very limited information and limited access to, to information. Uh, we look at jobs on TV or in the movies or on the internet, and then we're like, oh, that looks fun. But uh, it's hard to actually go, okay, I need to meet one of these people or I need to meet five of them. I need to shadow them at work. I need to really figure out what this job actually looks like. And uh, yet we're supposed to be making a choice about a career when we're 19. And uh, we haven't, uh, even if you've spent a lot of energy trying to get those shadowing kinds of experiences, you've only had so much time to do so. So uh, so that's another reason that I think of. Um Another reason is for, for indecision is I find a lot of young adults are trying to do something that they think they're supposed to be doing. They, uh, you know, they say they, um, a young adult, 20 years old, has an impulse to uh, be a franchise owner at McDonald's, but all their friends are thinking about being lawyers or uh, physicians or psychologists. And really what they, or they want to, work as a, um, you know, they want to work on a national park or something, but that's not very prestigious in their circle. And what I find is that um, when you talk to these people, they will be saying things like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I really feel like I should be doing more with my time here. You know, I feel like I should be really, you know, they're in pre-law or something. And they're like, you know, I really should be um, hitting the books more, but I don't know. I, it's just hard for me to, I feel like I'm very indecisive and I'm procrastinating all the time. And when you dig down deep with this person, you discover they don't want to be a lawyer. They, they think they should be a lawyer, but they don't want to be a lawyer. What they really want to do is walk in the woods and protect wildlife. <laughs> and, uh, 
and they don't care necessarily about a salary. They just want a good enough salary. Um, and so they're, they want to drop out of school and just go work at a national park. And so there are a lot of complications like that as well. There's a tremendous amount of expectation put on kids. And young adults absolutely know the ranking of different careers. They, they absolutely know like, okay, this career is this cool and this career is sort of, you know, not so great. And they're expected to shoot for cool uh, occupations. And so that's another reason why I think indecision can happen. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. He writes, I had a traumatic experience on psychedelic drug, on a psychedelic drug several years ago, and I'm still working through it in therapy. The trauma included depersonalization and a feeling of total eternal isolation and separateness. Maybe you could discuss psychedelics and PTSD on the topic of, or the topic of depersonalization. I hear about quote-unquote bad trips in popular culture, but I've never heard a mental health expert discuss psychedelics and how it can unlock repressed trauma or create new trauma, which is what happened with me, unfortunately. Yeah, Absolutely, anonymous patron, this can happen. It's rarely talked about. And when it is talked about, it's in this very clinical language, like you can experience interest, you know, you can experience long-term effect, long-term cognitive effects. And it's like, well, what does that mean exactly? I mean, part of the problem is that we are, uh, to some extent, uh, in the dark ages regarding our understanding of psychedelics, because one, we don't understand the brain. But two, we have been prevented from researching it because it was, you know, a massively illegal substance. So there's a lot of, shall I say, adolescentness about our cultural and scientific understanding of it. Um, I've even heard people blaming victims. People will say, oh, man, I had this. I, I'm still I, I, I took LSD 20 years ago and I'm still like recovering from it. And people say, oh, you must not have been in the right in a frame of mind. If, if you had, you know, where were you, they'll say. They'll say, you know, where, where were you when this happened? It's like, well, I don't know. I was at a party. Oh, yeah. Well, you can't take LSD at a party. You have to be with someone who understands what they're doing. And although there's some truth to that, it doesn't prevent the, the risk of having an extremely bad experience. Also, there's a big difference between having a quote-unquote bad trip and long-term psychological damage. Bad trips are, generally speaking, uh, you take LSD or you take mushrooms or something akin to that, and for you know a couple hours, you're paranoid and scared, and you think that you're going to die, and then the drug wears off, and you're fine, and you look back, and you're just like, whoa, that was weird. Okay, that's a bad trip. Not pleasant. But some people can have effects that last the rest of their life, negative effects that happen the rest of their life from these single experiences. So... Uh, it absolutely can happen. It can absolutely unlock, as you say, repressed trauma. The way that I would uh, phrase it is that you were traumatized early in life and you had a, a, a level of uh, defense against that trauma that involved not really thinking about it very much, but then going through the actual trauma of taking the substance, which was terrifying to you. 
it uh, you know pushed aside the barrier between you and the trauma that you had repressed from a long time ago, and it became much more present in your ongoing life. The other thing that can happen, of course, is depersonalization uh, just from the substance itself, which can be extremely distressing for people. And obviously, you can have PTSD afterwards because the drug experience can be so terror-inducing, can be so scary. I mean, psychedelics, you know, there's one thing to be nervous, right? You're like, oh, I'm a little nervous. Or, oh, I smoked some pot. I'm, I'm, this, this actually can happen with marijuana, too, if you take a fair amount of it. Uh, for some people, they can have absolutely uh, extremely negative reactions to marijuana. Um, I've even heard some things with alcohol that are akin to this as well uh, in, in some individuals. But anyway, you take any of these substances and they can alter the brain in such a way, regardless of your um, uh, you know, measures to have a good trip, quote unquote, and it can induce extreme terror in the individual. And whenever we go through extreme terror, this uh, allows for the opportunity for us to develop acute stress disorder or post or post traumatic stress disorder, meaning that. So let's say that you you take LSD and you have, for whatever reason, an extreme terror reaction, and you're you're just terrified during the experience, and it lasts for a long period of time, and that is going to affect anybody, and then you recover, and you know a few weeks later you start to feel kind of normal again. And then something reminds you of the LSD trip, like you walk by a head shop or you drink from a cup in a restaurant and this flash goes through your head of, did someone put LSD in my drink? And this throws your body into a terror reaction. And as time goes on, your body just learns that there are several things that can trigger this trauma reaction and one descends into PTSD where you just feel like you're disconnected from the world. You can get quite depressed. You can be, uh, you know, you can be very avoidant of triggers. You can become agoraphobic and this kind of thing. And so it's relatively rare, um, but it definitely absolutely happens. So um, now the, on the plus side, you can be treated for both for dissociation and depersonalization uh, trauma therapy, long-term trauma th- or you know, effective trauma therapy can help, meaning that you go through um, a process of slowly acclimating to the trauma memories uh, and learning how to ground yourself, learning how to cope with uh, mild depersonalization or mild association. So it, because one of the things that happens when you depersonalize is that it's so distressing and so scary because you think, oh, my God, am I ever going to come back? That that trauma and that fear can actually cause you to depersonalize more. So uh, so part of it is getting kind of used to your dissociation to some extent, which is not a good thing. There, there's really no happy ending to this. Um, it In all likelihood, you know, people who suffer from dissociation, in my experience, they, they just have to cope with it the rest of their life. There's a lot of effective ways to cope, and there's a lot of good ways to cope with it, a lot of ways to manage it. But uh, in my experience, once that door is open, it's, it's hard to close it. For, but people do, people do close the door effectively with uh, proper trigger management and, and therapy. Uh, and also PTSD is absolutely treatable. So you're in therapy, and uh, I hope that you're getting effective treatment for that. It can take a long time. 
but have hope and have optimism because um, I've worked with people who have had PTSD from uh, psychedelics and have absolutely recovered from it. It took a while, but with education, with exposure therapy, with emotional regulation, with grounding techniques, they not only reduce their symptoms, but it basically went away. So I hope that you get the treatment that you need for that. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, my thoughts on, let's see, I, I wanted to talk about borderline and complex PTSD. Um, let's see. So when learning about borderline in abnormal psychology class, I felt I could identify with the feelings, but not the behaviors. Uh, for instance, in the past, when I felt neglected by a partner, I wanted to kill myself. However, I was so ashamed of this that I couldn't tell them. That's when I started going to therapy so I could tell someone. Rather than cycling between idealization and blaming my partner, I cycle between idealization and blaming of myself to the point of shutting out others emotionally. I've heard you talk about how avoidant is the basis of narcissism and preoccupation is the basis of borderline, but I'm, but I'm, tempted, but I'm tempted to call the symptoms I exhibit avoidant borderline. But then again, I relate more to preoccupied considering the way you differentiated between avoidant, uh, the problem is them versus preoccupied, the problem is me. Uh, maybe I'm missing something because I'm not a clinician. By the way, I know labeling my mental health problems isn't going to solve them. I'm just insatiably curious about the human mind and find exploring my own to be incredibly satisfying and gratifying. Yeah, uh, good. Self-discovery is a powerful thing towards healing. So number one, I, I get a lot of uh, comments like this, and I, I want to make something very clear, that it's impossible to fit everyone neatly into the small number of categories. When we're talking about uh, uh, attachment styles, we're talking about four categories, secure, avoidant, preoccupied, and disorganized. These are four, just four categories. What's the chance that everyone is quintessentially within those categories? What's the chance that no one is in between? The, the other thing to think about when we're thinking about uh, attachment uh, uh, styles is the main spectrum to think about is the spectrum between security and insecurity. Generally speaking, that's much more meaningful than whether or not someone is preoccupied or avoidant. So among the insecure attachment styles, you have avoidant, disorganized, and preoccupied. But you can vacillate between those depending on the level of insecurity you have. The one thing that people don't tend to do is suddenly jump to secure when they're insecure. Now, they can be in some uh, context that can help them, uh, you know, act from a more secure attachment place. But, um, but anyway, so I have found that uh, for some people, they can become quite rigidly avoidant or rigidly borderline uh, and preoccupied, but other people seem to vacillate. So, so that's one thing to think about. The other thing to think about is this term that you're throwing out called the quiet borderline. In my field and on the internet, Borderlines are often referred to as being quite aggressive, right? They are constantly trying to sue people. They're constantly uh, threatening to kill themselves. They're manipulative, you know, all these kinds of things. And certainly a certain uh, small percentage of people with borderline personality can exhibit that behavior when they're pushed to their limit. But often most people are not, especially when we consider the spectrum of borderline personality. We don't want to just look at the DSM and 
look at that as the only version of borderline personality. That's a, an extreme version and a particular kind of version. Plus, when you're looking at the DSM, we're talking about uh, a number of symptoms that they're throwing out, and you only have to you know meet some of them. So even within the DSM uh, label, there are there's variation. So, uh, but really, it's more or I don't know, more helpful to think about borderline personality as a spectrum. And at the higher end, we have the DSM diagnosis. So you have people who are, say, you know, 50% on the spectrum. And I might say 75%, then you start qualifying for the DSM diagnosis. So if you're at the 50% mark of borderline personality, then you are, you, you have a better sense of yourself than people higher on the spectrum. You're a little bit better at um, managing your emotions. You're a little bit better at knowing what's right and wrong in relationships, meaning that you don't attack people and uh, threaten people. And so uh, you avoid those kind of impulses and turn away from other people. So it's totally possible that you, especially given how you seem to really identify with the preoccupied side of the spectrum, it's possible that when you're at the edge of your tolerance regarding being hurt and abandoned by other people, whether perceived or real, that you uh, know you're mature enough and your borderline is uh, low enough that you just say, you know what, I just need to take a break and I'm, I'm going to pull away from people. I need to recharge. I, I know from experience that if I continue down this road of trying to convince this person to love me, bad things are going to happen. So I'm going to retreat. That's totally within the umbrella of preoccupation and borderline. Uh, it, it looks avoidant, but it's not and it's at its basis avoidant. Avoidant people avoid all the time. Avoidant people avoid as a policy. That's, that's their style of living. So they avoidant people often never get close enough to someone to actually even get hurt. So, uh, so that's just something to think about. So the act of avoidance doesn't mean you're avoidant. The act of avoidance can absolutely be within the uh, description of or within the construct of borderline. Again, having said all that, it doesn't really matter what label we put to it. It much more matters how we describe it. I know you, anonymous patron, want a label. So go ahead and call yourself a 50% borderline preoccupied person uh, who uh, is um, uh, mature enough or low enough on the spectrum to not self-destruct under distress that you instead avoid and you pull away. Um, the The thing is, is uh, when it comes to this sort of thing, I find that it's based on this notion that borderlines are always, you know, really severe and horrible. And I, I hesitate using the term quiet borderline because that implies that other borderlines, like just regular borderlines, are somehow not quiet. <laughs> and uh, it to me, it'd be like if Muslim people in America had to call themselves like non-terrorist Muslims, you know. Uh, hello, I'm a non-terrorist Muslim. And that somehow implies that other, all other Muslims are terrorists. And I, I, I resist against that languaging of it because I, I, want, I don't want to change the terms. What I, what I want to do is change the definition for the term. I want everyone to understand borderline as it is and stop looking at it in these really extreme uh, prejudicial ways. All right, this next email is from patron Alexander. Alexander writes, I work with a client with disorganized attachment in a group home. I find that I struggle to connect and create a repairing attachment with him. 
He dismisses me when I offer to take him out on activities, and he is hard to hold a longer conversation with. He has temper tantrums. He uses drugs. I find it hard to motivate him to strive for a better life. What should I do? Yeah, well, the first thing I'll say is I'm glad you, Alexander, are out there helping people like this. It is a wonderful, noble thing to do. It's hard work. Um, so what do you do? Well, it's hard for me to know, obviously, because I don't know him. But if I were to speak generally about treating disorganized attachment people with uh, these kinds of presentations, the best thing you can do is think of him as a very young child, a very young child who has been through a lot. And when you see a younger child do something self-destructive, you just sort of consider it to be uh, par for the course, right? And it shouldn't be any different with him. Disorganized, attached people are extremely ar uh, developmentally arrested, meaning that there's a part of their personality that is almost that of a six-month-year-old. And they can pretty quickly uh, regress to that, to that space. And so when they are doing things, you just have to take it with a grain of salt and you have to um, treat them like that. Like when a young child throws a temper tantrum, you don't reject them. You just, uh, you create boundaries. Like if they're going to hit someone, you don't allow them to do that. But if they're um, extremely unhinged and angry, uh, you know, you sit with them and you reflect their feelings and you help them try to understand what's happening. But you also don't pull away. Uh, you don't try to solve their problem because it's not really solvable. But you also don't reject them. So there's this kind of sweet spot of staying in contact, being empathetic, drawing boundaries, um, and not letting them get away with stuff but at the same time, um, staying in contact. And through repetition, this will help to move someone out of disorganized attachment. They'll probably adopt a preoccupied or avoidant attachment style before they can move on to secure. That's one of the things to think about when you're treating disorganized attached individuals is the uh, hope is not to get them to secure attachment. The hope is to get them to rise up to the level of either preoccupied borderline or avoidant narcissistic. And if they enter one of those other realms, don't think of it as a failure. Think of it as definitely better than when they're disorganized. Because the thing about being disorganized is the person has no coping technique. They have no ability to defend against the terror of being alone and rejected and unlovable. They just become completely unglued and trapped in their own minds. And so for them to graduate to narcissism is actually a good thing because at least they have some way of coping with it, right? So when he dismisses you, just try to stay in contact with him. Uh, it might take years for him to trust you. Uh, he, it might take years for him to indicate that he even cares about your existence. Um, but the thing to remember is deep down, he desperately wants a connection with you more than anybody. People who are of disorganized attachment might come across like they don't care, um, narcissistic people as well. But these people are the most desperate people on the planet for some connection. Uh, they might not be conscious of it, but man, do they want it. And if you just stay in contact long enough, then that might help them to learn to trust. But it takes a long time. It's, it's long work uh, to effectively turn someone around from 
what I would consider to be quintessential disorganized attachment style, I would guess it would take 10 years, 20 years of therapy. And then, and then after that, they're, they're just graduated to some other higher form of insecure attachment style. And so uh, disorganized attachment is really rough. Now, this doesn't mean that people with, with disorganized attachment are doomed. Uh, it just means that the underlying foundational personality is, is not going to change very quickly. People with disorg- I've treated people with disorganized attachment, and when they get to know their condition, they can actually cope with it. Uh, they can do a lot of things to help themselves out. Um, cognitively and behaviorally and, you know, in the short term. But um, long term, it's hard. And the thing to remember with disorganized attached individuals is it's very hard work. And it's it's very hard just to be near them, right? There's a lot of countertransference that can happen when you're just around these, these sorts of people. They can really make it essentially... However bad they feel on the inside, they will make you feel just as bad because that's just how projective identification works. They have to dump it into somebody. And it's up to you to metabolize those feelings as best you can without um, pushing it back on them. They're giving you an opportunity to help them heal, but it feels bad to be around them. And so uh, it's hard. It can be very ungratifying. Um, It can be very distressing to see someone self-destruct and not really care about therapy very much. Um, so make sure you have a system for managing your countertransference and knowing that, and also getting your own therapy and consultation and opportunities to vent, because otherwise you're going to burn out real fast, especially if you're working in a group home with a lot of these sorts of people. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, I've been seeing my therapist for almost four years, and he's great and has helped me a lot but I am still struggling with expressing my emotions in therapy. When I do feel emotions, I don't know what to do with them, and my mind goes blank, and as he recently pointed out, I run away in my mind and shut down. I can't look at him, I just stare at the wall. I can hear him, but I can't really say anything. Sometimes I don't realize it until he tries to find me with his eyes. Is this some kind of mild association? I know you've talked about it before, dissociation, but I didn't have anything that bad happen to me when I was a young child. I grew up in a good enough family. We just didn't talk about or express emotions. We mostly pretended they didn't exist. In fact, I wasn't even aware that I had feelings until I started therapy. Is there a way to overcome the fear of showing the emotions? He welcomes any feelings that I have and has never reacted badly. So I am not sure why it is still so hard for me to let him see me. End of email. Uh, so you ask if it's dissociation. It's hard to tell from your description. It, it could be given your description, but it doesn't sound like it given your description. Obviously you should talk with your therapist about this because th- he would be a better, he would be better able to assess for this. It sounds more like a different condition that I've seen in clients before. Um, but before I go into that, I, I just want to say I'm glad that you grew up in a good enough family, but it's likely that they did damage you by not letting you talk about your emotions, particularly your anger. Um, you remember, you know, as a, as a young person, you're like, well, I had a good enough family and, you know, we just didn't talk about our emotions. But it's quite possible that when you were, uh, you know, pre-memory years, like age two and three, that you were expressing your emotions back then, but your family somehow found a way to shut you down and not let you express your emotions. So although you don't really remember that time, uh, you, you might actually have been through some 
some pretty harsh, rigid mistreatment as a very young child. Because for you to not realize you have emotions at all tells me something about the quality of your parenting early in life. Now, they might have shut you down or you might have been through some bad experiences like your parents could have been depressed or something. It, you know, There's a lot of different roads to that sort of thing. I, I obviously can't um, know that for sure, but um, it sounds like it. So there's a possibility that your road to wellness is getting angry. Uh, being Anger is a wonderful emotion to dislodge the rest of the emotions. It's very motivating. There's probably a lot of anger in you, and you deserve to have that expressed to get things moving. So like I said, I've worked with clients like you before who will, in session, when they approach an emotional expression, this thing kind of kicks in. The thing to think about is that it's a physical reaction. It's not a cognitive one. So a lot of people like you will say, what's wrong with me? You know, I want to tell my therapist how I feel, but you know, something I just always hold back. Well, that implies that you're doing it by choice or that there's a choice that you have a, you know, a decision that you're making. But in my experience, people like you, have no choice in the matter. There's something really quite physical that kicks in. So imagine you're two years old and you have anger or you have sadness or some kind of emotion and your family finds a way to, to make it very uncomfortable for you to express that emotion. Uh, there's a lot of different ways families can make one uncomfortable. They can abuse you, but they can also just really ignore you or subtly punish you by withdrawing. And so you learned early in life, your body learned, that to express emotion results in very bad things. In the same way that when you put your hand on a, on a hot stove, you learn that that has a lot of pain. And so uh, when you, today for us, when we reach for a flame, we know it's hard for us to put our hand in the middle of a flame because we've learned that flames are hot and they burn. And so uh, if you just ask someone, even, you know, like there's this, illusion of a flame and you say, stick your hand in the flame for 10 seconds. It would be hard for people to do that. And some people wouldn't be able to. They'd just be like, even though you're telling them the flame won't hurt you, uh, it'd be very hard for them to do that. Or say uh, bungee jumping. That's probably a better example. Or or skydiving. Even though uh, the person, you know, strapped on the bungee cord or got into the plane and put, you know, strapped on the the parachute, they get to the door and there's, you know, their body just kicks in. There's like, nope, not going to happen. I, uh, it's just not going to happen. Their cognitive mind might be like, it's no big deal. Just let it, just let it happen. It's fine. But their body is like, nope, not going to happen. Well, that's what it's like for people like you. I don't know if this is the case for you, but I've treated people with this before who find that it's a very physical thing that kicks in before their emotion comes out. And they actually don't have a choice. So the key is through therapy is to learn that it's a safe place to do that ever so slowly. And essentially, it's an exposure therapy. So what you want to begin with is your thoughts and feelings about not expressing your thoughts and feelings, So which you're already doing in therapy. So by, by talking with your therapist, for example, you tell your therapist, so last session... I had an emotion and I, I just couldn't get it out. And I stared at the wall and you were trying to get eye contact with me. And I, there's a part of me that really wanted to tell you how I feel, but there's another part of me that really didn't. And by expressing that sentiment openly is a very vulnerable thing. And 
by experiencing your therapist as a secure person who cares, who doesn't punish you, and actually even is very empathetic and very caring about your uh, disclosure, your body learns, oh, this actually is a safe thing to do with people. Ever so slowly, your body becomes more, uh, learns more and more that it's safe, that it's okay to stick your hand in the flame. It's not going to burn you, but it takes time. So just keep doing it. It sounds like you're already on the right track. Um, but your question, you know, is it dissociation? I can't really tell, obviously. Dissociation, you know, you say some things where it could be dissociation, where you, you say your mind goes blank and then uh, you shut down, you can't look at him, you just stare at the wall, and you can hear him, but you can't really say anything. So that absolutely could be what I might consider mild dissociation. But usually when people describe dissociation, they're, they talk about disappearing and becoming kind of spacey or their uh, selfhood sort of goes to the back of their head and their body is operating on autopilot. You're not saying anything like that. What you're describing to me is what I hear people say who are not dissociating but who are experiencing that kind of physical fear because of traumas that they've been through to expressing their emotions. Like I said, you say you came from a loving family, but it's quite possible that when you were one, two, and three, that they reacted in such a way that made you feel that you uh, were really quite better off shutting down your body when it comes to emotions. And it just takes time. So keep doing it. You're doing it right now. Good for you. All right, this next email is from famous patron Lyndon, who wrote uh, in to give me an article uh, that uh, he wanted me to read um, because he probably knew it would trigger my anger. It's an article on The Independent, and it's called Counseling Doesn't Work in the Long Term, written by Robin Bailey. I'm just going to read the, uh, the, the article here. My cat is probably going to start meowing in a second. Maybe I'll just pick her up here. Come on. What? What? Want to hang out? Let's hang out. All right. So once I get the cat kind of settled in my lap, she likes to talk a lot. Um, sometimes she just wants to say things. Okay. So the article goes like this. Person-centered counseling is one of the most popular treatments for mental health problems, often just shortened to counseling. So right there, I think this person has no idea what they're talking about. Person-centered counseling is not often shortened to just counseling. <laughs> no one in our field mistakes the freight, you know, the term counseling with with person-centered counseling. <laughs> That's a ridiculous statement. Um, the approach focuses on how patients view themselves in the here and now. That's um, not a bad description. Rather than how a therapist interprets their unconscious thoughts. Well, I mean. Uh, that's a pretty simplistic statement as a, you know, comparing to psychodynamic and the patient takes the lead in finding solutions to their own problems. Yeah, that's true about person centered uh, therapy. This humanistic form of therapy was developed by Carl, Carl Rogers in the 1940s and is now one of the three main mental health treatments alongside CBT and psychodynamic therapy. Um, yeah, most of that is generally true. However, despite its popularity and longevity, counseling doesn't appear to make people better in the long term. So again, I assume they mean person-centered therapy doesn't appear because every time they're using the phrase counseling, 
what they're meaning is person-centered counseling, which I find to be bizarre. Because you ask, in my town anyway, uh, okay, how many of you call yourself person-centered therapists? I would say, you know, that's that's your sole form of therapy that you use. I would say 1% of therapists in my region would say that their sole theory is person-centered. So this is a bit weird to just say like, well, we're just going to refer to counseling as person-centered. We're just going to refer to person-centered counseling as counseling. Those are synonymous terms. That's silly. Um, but, you know, I'm with them to this to some extent here. They say, so this is a this is an article, an indictment on therapy, right? That therapy doesn't work. So they, they lay out kind of the introduction, and I'm kind of with them at the beginning. Then they go into the second paragraph, and they say, mental health issues are a huge global problem. The World Health Organization estimates that between 35 and 50% of people in developed countries suffer from anxiety or depression in any given year. So right away, we have leapt to something very interesting. Uh, we have gone specifically to two particular presenting problems, depression and anxiety. This is what these articles always do because they don't understand what therapy is. Uh, I, in my life as a therapist over 20 plus years, I can only think of a handful of clients out of thousands of people that I've worked with who came to me specifically and solely for depression or anxiety. And of those people, it was pretty quick that we realized there were other presenting problems like their relationships or their um, finding themselves, this kind of thing. So to, uh, to look at depression and anxiety as the, uh, the only reason why people come to therapy is really quite silly. Also, a lot of these studies that claim that therapy doesn't work will point to its effectiveness with depression and anxiety. I get why, because a lot of the literature focuses on that, because it's one of the only, it's two of the only things that we can really codify in numerical senses, because there's these um, measures that will measure your level of depression, so to speak, and your level of anxiety. And then over time, you can see if things have improved. But how do you d d uh, determine improvement in relationships or improvement in the meaning of your life or improvement in your general well-being? It's really hard to do. Plus, it requires total self-report. So it's, it's hard to – and it's hard to codify into behaviors. Like with depression, you can say, um, how many times have you thought about suicide? Well, there's a numerical – marker there. Now it's still self-report and it's probably a little squishy, but you know, there's a discrete difference between every day versus every other day versus once a month, right? Th those are, those are different. But when you ask someone, um, how, m how meaningful do you, is your life or how good do you feel <laughs> or something? These are extremely squishy things that are um, you know, not very useful when um, trying to numericize. And so uh, we look to depression and anxiety to, uh, uh, I don't know, justify our existence as therapists. So yeah, this, this article um, right from the beginning annoys me. Uh, to study the effectiveness of therapy requires a, a researcher and a, and a, you know, author, a journalist, to understand so much more than what is typically given to them. You have to, 
you have to really understand all the different reasons why people come to therapy. You have to understand all the different methods of evaluating therapy. You have to understand all the pitfalls of trying to manualize different forms of therapy, especially in our current time when very few people concentrate on only one form of therapy. Almost everyone I know, in fact, everyone I know, uh, and almost everyone I ever talked to is an integrationist. They at least integrate two different theories, if not three. I integrate all the theories. <laughs> I like all of them. Uh, I'm not super fond of reality therapy, and uh, and I, I don't use I, IFS, but I could I see the value in it. But I use Gestalt. I use systems. I use psychodynamic. I use psychoanalysis. I use humanistic. I use person-centered. I use emotionally focused. I use feministic. I feminist. I use um, uh, you know cultural. I use social constructionism. I use, you know, what am I, I use bio, biological uh, findings. And so uh, I use everything because, of course, all of it is useful. Why would I throw out something arbitrarily when there's a whole group of people who consider that to be very useful? So I'm, I'm going to try to use everything. And I'm going to tailor my treatment to the client depending on what they bring me and depending on their stage of change. So, um, oh, I left out brief therapies like solution focused. Um, so anyway, yeah, good job, famous patron Lennon, for pissing me off with this article. That was your job. Um, <laughs> you were pissed off about the article too. So, all right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next question is from someone. I don't remember where I got this question. It might have even been on Discord. I'm not sure. So they ask, how do you know when you're in a good relationship? This is a really excellent question and one that I think everyone asks themselves at some point, um, if not seriously. Uh, there's a form of couple therapy called discernment counseling, which um, addresses this to some extent. But really, um, it, this is one of the things that I would say half of the clients who have come to me in the last five years, 10 years, have uh, had at least part of the reason why they come to see me is because of this. They'll come to me and they'll be in a long-term relationship and they just they just wonder if they should continue being in that relationship. They they wonder, am I in a good relationship? Should should I leave? What if I leave, will I just create the same relationship all over again with someone else? Will it be worse? If I leave, will it be so painful that I'll just come running back to my partner? Um should I just put up with the bad, you know, relation, long-term relationships, you got you to gotta put up with the bad? Am I just being a whiny person? Um, so there's a lot of questions about that. Um, now, so what I do with people is we just explore that question for a long time. I have worked with clients for years exploring this question. It is not an easy question to answer. There is no simple way of evaluating this. What I find is that as long as people uh, continually or as often as possible talk about it and think about it and explore it, eventually they'll get to a place where they will be able to make a decision. One of the things I'll also say is that in general, when people come to me and they ask this question of me, they say, you know, am I in a good relationship? Uh, should, I, should I stay in this relationship? Because I'm on the fence. I will say that Often what that means is eventually that person will decide to leave their partner. Whether or not they do or not is a whole other thing. So that's, a, you know, because people who are in 
um, shall we say, good enough relationships tend not to even ask that question of themselves. Now, this gets complicated because there's a lot of personality involved in this. You might be uh, of a particular attachment style where you want to run from people and you frequently, uh, even on small issues, just decide, I'm getting a divorce. So there's a lot of things that kind of fold into this that uh, it's a, that make it very hard to generalize about. Now, one of the things that I do ask clients when they're asking me this question is I say, do you want to spend the rest of your life with this person the way that they are right now? And I find that people have very quick answers to that question. The people who are in good enough relationships will tend to say, well, yeah, I, I love my spouse. I just really wish they were different. But yeah, I mean, I could live with them the way that they are right now. I wish that they would change the, you know, these three annoying things about them. But yeah, I'd like to spend the rest of my life with this person. I can see that happening. And then there's the other type of person who will immediately say no. I say, do you want to spend the rest of your life with this person the way that they are right now? They'll say, no, absolutely not. There's, there's no way I want, to, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person the way that they are right now. And that, to me, is sort of telling. Now, that doesn't automatically mean that's a litmus test for uh, a bad relationship or that they should leave, but it does tell you something. It does tell the client something about uh, the way that they feel. Because a lot of times when people are in bad relationships or relationships that they deep down want to leave, they think about all the implications of leaving and they quickly turn themselves around. So say you're married, you have kids, you've been together for 15 years, and you know your therapist asks you, do you want to spend the rest of your life with this person the way that they are right now? And you're like, nope, nope, nope. And then immediately you start thinking, well, geez, that, this means I got to get a divorce. Well, geez, this means I have to start dating again. This means we, I have to tell my kids. This means I have to tell all my friends and my family. This means I have to uh, find an apartment and sell the house and um, you know, go to court maybe and have a custody battle. And immediately all that fear and all that terror, just uh, the, the brain says, okay, let's shut that down. And they'll say, well, maybe I can live with this. You know, may, I could maybe put up with these things. And so uh, what I find is for some people – they really just have to sit with that for a second and just say, okay, we can get to the fears in a second and all the implications, but let's just sit with the fact that, uh, you know, how you feel just in isolation about the question, do you want to spend the rest of your life with this person? And really just sit with the answer to that question. It doesn't mean you have to do anything. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It just means you're just answering that question based on how you feel in your gut and uh, you're evaluating it. Let's just sit there for a second. The other thing I'll ask people, because often people who are in this state will be in couples therapy or they, their partner might be in therapy or something. And so they'll think, well, I don't want to be with my partner the, the way that they are right now, but they're in therapy and, you know, maybe they'll, they'll change. And I, I, do seem, I do see some movement of growth for my partner away from the behaviors that I don't like. So then I ask the question, okay, do you want to spend the rest of your life with your partner with a 50% reduction in the things that bother you. Because a 50% reduction in the things that bother you is kind of an optimistic uh, thing. Um, you know, I can't remember who I was talking to, students or clients or something, but the things that bother us about our partner will always bother us about our partner. Uh, there's this myth that somehow 
by improving a relationship that you can sort of do away with certain complaints you have about your partner, whether it be that your partner has a lower libido than you or a higher, higher libido, or your partner doesn't talk enough, or your partner talks too much, or your partner doesn't listen enough to you, or your partner is too harsh of a parent, or these kinds of things. It's pretty rare that these sorts of things will just be eliminated. Now, you absolutely can work on it, and people do change, but the tendencies usually stick around, and the dynamic is usually sticks around, especially under times of stress. So, to get a 50% reduction in the things that bother you about your spouse is, is a pretty good achievement. And so I often say, okay, well, let's say we reduce the things about your partner to about 50%, which is you know maybe a tall order. Do you, do you want to spend the rest of your life with this person uh, with that thing? And if they're like, no, I don't. I need, I need full elimination of all their problems. Then that says something about the compatibility of these two people because – it's um, hard to achieve 50% reduction, but it's possible. And if the person still doesn't want to spend time with this person, you know, then that says something. I don't know exactly what it says, but I just want clients to sit with the answer to that question. The other questions that I'll pose, so that's a main question. I'll, with some of my clients, I will ask them those questions, some version of it, every time we meet. Because they, every time we meet, they're sort of mulling over this question. I say, okay, well, I just want to ask the question again. Do you want to spend the rest of your life with this person with a 50% reduction of things that bother you? And the answer might change over time, and, they, and sometimes they do. And that's the other thing about this question is if you're contemplating you know, this sort of thing, should I divorce, should I not, is, and I tell clients this, is to expect a lot of vacillation and a lot of wishy-washiness over time. Uh, so, I mean, I've worked with people for you know, seven-plus years and every time we meet, we explore whether or not they want to get a divorce or not. It, for some people, just for I would say for most people, if not all people, it takes a long time. Now, if you're in a relationship for, say, six months, then usually it doesn't take a long time. But if you're in a relationship for 10 years uh, plus, typically it takes a long time from the point where someone says, you know, there, there's a point, there's, a, there's sort of a progression towards divorce, which is, there's a question that enters someone's mind like, geez, I don't know if I want to be in this relationship. It's sort of an amorphous question. Then they end up in therapy. And then at some point they might say something like, yeah, I, I don't want to be in this relationship. So from the time that someone tells me that in therapy, they're like, yes, I want to leave to the time that they actually, actually leave. It's usually about three to five years. So there's a lot of vacillation. There's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of, okay, let's give this another try. And that's all normal. And it gets very, it gets very quote unquote messy. And it's important that everyone just normalize that. Other questions that I might ask people, secondary questions to the main one that I ask might be, do you look forward to being with your partner? Like, you know, when you have a date night or when you have a free, you know, day off on the weekend, are you looking forward to spending time with your partner? Do you respect your partner? Do you trust your partner to be there when you need them? That's a big one. When you get excited about something, do you immediately tell your partner? These are all indications of what might be happening for you and you know, worth, worth exploring. Now, you might say no to all those questions. You know, I don't really respect my partner. I don't look forward to being with my partner. I don't, I, when I get excited, I don't tell them things. And yet you still might decide you want to be with your partner. There's a lot of different reasons why people stay in relationships. Um, sometimes people 
will be in relationships because of the kids. Sometimes people stay in their relationships because they just want the the stability, the the, the kind of family stability. Um, some people are in marriages because they want to be in love. Some people not. So it 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 really just runs the gamut. And I have learned over time because I have a sense in my own personal life about how I make this decision for myself. And it's. I thought the way I did it was at least similar to the way other people did it, but by very thorough contact with other humans in relation to this question, I've realized that there are many different ways that people approach the question, should I stay in this relationship? Is this relationship good? And that requires a lot of exploration and a lot of getting to know yourself, a lot of getting to know your own emotions, your own needs. And that can take a long time. So that's my answer to that question. How do you know you're in a good relationship? All right. Well, that does it for that patron episode in which I answer your patron questions. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, again, if you want to ask questions, go to the website and use the Contact Us form. It's the best way to contact me. And please, please take care of yourself really, truly, because you deserve it. You know that you really, really, really do. 